Who cares about this? Indeed, I do. <laughs> Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts, a different view on international justice with me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van der Berg. You're here because you're interested in The Hague and justice, and you want to hear insights from us, two journalists with asymmetrical haircuts. And we've been covering it all for years. We tend to invite uh, female guests, uh, researchers, activists, journalists, uh, ones who share with us our obsession with the hows and whys of justice for atrocity crimes. And today we have with us Barbara Hola, a researcher from the VU University who focuses on perpetrators. Yes. And she really looks at that whole business of the end of trials. I can remember interviewing Barbara about sentences and why specific sentences were given out. What have you interviewed her about before? I have also interviewed her about sentences and what happens with people after they've been sentenced, but also what is a, like a large sentence and what is a not so large sentence in international justice because people get um, sentenced to like nine years and that doesn't seem very large but for international justice that's quite a quite a reasonable sentence but then you look at um, local trials and people get sentenced to 12 15 years for attempted murder and somebody gets nine years for murdering 500 people and I remember you also did a Hague Talks once, Barbara, that um, I was helping with where you were talking about uh, what actually has happened to perpetrators uh, after they've been sentenced and you know, wh where they go then. So let's start by asking you, what are you working on at the moment? Okay, hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, really great title, I think, of, of the podcast, Asymmetrical Haircuts. Um, so what I'm working on, I'm working on many different things, but uh, partially sentencing still, so how the sentences are determined, but now I sort of went away from The Hague and went more to the local jurisdictions, so did some research in Rwanda and Bosnia, how domestic courts uh, sentenced perpetrators and how it actually levels up or not to the international uh, courts. Okay, well, just then, well, what's what's your one sentence take on that? Is there a direct equivalence? Is everything very different? Does it depend on local circumstances? You hit the nail on the head. It depends on, on the local circumstances. So in Rwanda, actually, the, the uh, sentences were much more punitive compared to the ICTR, especially given given the level of seniority that, that uh, people had who were tried in, in Rwanda. So Rwanda went sort of more of a punitive way, especially for the most culpable ones. In Bosnia, which was another country that I was uh, focusing on, um, the sentences were actually quite comparable. And comparable because the majority of people who were tried in Bosnia were low-level soldiers. So I think that from the top of my head, like the average sentence in Bosnia is six years. So also quite lenient, uh, I would say. But that also has to do with who is being tried. So these are usually really like a hands-on perpetrator, low-level soldiers. And they are tried for like one incident crimes, as I call it. So one murder tried as a war crime. So in this sense, uh, Bosnian sentences are maybe uh, more lenient, but comparatively very leveled with the ICTY. 
And do you think that is because the, most of the mid-level and high-level people were dealt with by the Yugoslav tribunal, that they have this low level and they have equivalent sentences, or is it also um, something else? Well, yeah, not certainly not all mid-level and high-level were tried uh, at the ICTY. I think there are still many, many out there. Uh, but it has to do with many different things. One of them being that, uh, for example, in Bosnia, uh, prosecutors have quota. And it's the easiest way to charge someone with, with uh, single incident crime. And it's much more difficult to prove crimes against humanity, for example. So you say right. they've got to put so many people on trial, yeah, yeah, so yeah. they just make sure that they get them for at least something. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Uh, and in the sense that one murder is, as a war crime is much easier to prove than, for example, um, several murders or uh, abuse that you have to show widespread and systematic, part of a widespread and systematic pattern to make it crimes against humanity. Exactly. So they'd go for what they can get. Yeah. What I would think of is that it also depends on on the judges' concerns that I presume in Bosnia there's also a lot of international judges as well as local ones. So does it also depend where people are from judges-wise and what their ideas are? I think not anymore. So there used to be international judges until 2012 and now actually the Bosnian court system is very uh, domesticated so they basically phased out all the international personnel and the indictments are actually uh, the prosecutor business. So I don't think that judges have control over, over the indictments. Uh, in this sense, maybe like when the internationals, and now I'm speculating a little bit, but when the internationals were there, the cases might have been slightly more complex because uh, maybe there was more and more will to, to, to do so. But nowadays, really, uh, the majority of the cases are really sim <coughs> simple ones uh, which are put forward. And I think that actually yesterday there was a there was a report by the OSCE uh, issued uh, on that issue. I haven't I haven't read it yet, but I think that they commented on similar similar things because in Bosnia actually you still have like thousands of cases which are ongoing. So so uh, there has been a strategy, war crime strategy, how to handle all the cases. Uh, and I think that all the cases should have been done by 2018, which obviously did not happen. And I think that there is still more than 5,000 open cases. So it just takes time. Yeah, and it's probably in Bosnia also a question that all the kind of low-hanging fruit or the, the easy cases or the most glaring cases have been handled. And now you get into the kind of the dregs of what has left are the more complicated cases. And another thing is whether it is still uh, such a pressing issue. Because if you think about it, it has been 25 years or how long when the war ended. And there are many other things which might be much more pressing than, than, than the prosecutions. Is that the same case in Rwanda? I mean, it's also 25 years. And is there a sense, do you think then, okay, we've, we've done it, we've got over it, and uh, we don't need to... Because you say in Rwanda that, uh, that much more punitive... Uh, sentences. So in Rwanda, in Rwanda, the story is totally different, and I think it has to do with the fact how how uh, the genocide and the civil war ended. So uh, basically, uh, RPF took over power, and they uh, took it as their mission to punish the perpetrators, sort of like like end the impunity for for the cycles of violence that were there. And they so these sentences are seen as part of that yeah. anti 
impunityness yeah. that we make it very yeah. strong to say never again. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of like I think that nowadays it's part of a Rwandan identity. It's just that we are we Rwandans are victims of genocide and those responsible would be punished. And I think that what is also important in Rwanda is that they adopted this uh, very specific in a way localized way how to deal with perpetrators which are gachacha so gachacha actually uh, convicted over 1 million people uh, in the course i think of 10 years or how long they, they were running and i i think i need to qualify with the punitiveness uh, it goes to the most culpable ones so really the ones who organized and orchestrated the massacres because with respect to the low hanging fruit as you said uh, they adopted much more lenient policy. So the sentences actually were, were uh, around 10 years, and then if they confessed, they were even more mitigated. So there was sort of like a, a bifurcated way how to deal with perpetrators. Can you explain for our listeners who are not as into Rwanda as maybe we are, uh, how a gachacha court works and why it would be different from, mm-hmm. from a normal court? So a uh, gachacha court is basically, some people call it a traditional dispute resolution. It was a very modified uh, traditional dispute resolution. It used to be a practice in Rwanda how to deal with minor offenses or neighborhood disputes. And basically the idea is that, that uh, the elders in the community uh, sit down on the grass and talk about, about the dispute. And this type of uh, setting was adopted to deal with perpetrators of genocide. So Gachacha was uh, implemented uh, countrywide in Rwanda in uh, 2005, I think, and uh, basically in every village there was a gachacha court, which was uh, um, made by civilians, so there were no lawyers, uh, and uh, there was uh, uh, lay judges, which actually uh, presided over over a hearing with a perpetrator and neighbors. There was no prosecutor, there was no defense lawyers, so people basically talked uh, about what happened. And uh, while talking, uh, there were also quite significant sentences. So if someone was found guilty, it depended on uh, what category that person belonged to. So what Rwanda did, they categorized perpetrators into three categories. Uh, The ones who uh, just stole property, it was category three. Category two were the ones who uh, offended uh, or who injured uh, or killed someone, and category one were the orchest- orchestrators. This is very, very roughly said. And then the sentences were gradated. So the orchestrators could have been sentenced to life imprisonment if they if they were found guilty. The so there were preset uh, sentences yeah. for if you're found guilty of a category one crime, yeah. you can have X to X. Yeah, and exactly. X to X. Exactly. Oh, good. And, and then it have gachacha courts explained. <laughs> and then it also also depended on uh, whether the perpetrator uh, pleaded guilty, as we would say in international criminal law jargon. So if they confessed and apologized, then the, their sentences could have been very significantly mitigated. You say you've been working on not just the international courts and tribunals, but we were working more in countries. Is that because you see that as the main trend of the way that justice for atrocity crimes is now working? I think nowadays certainly, so we are we are shifting there. When I, uh, back in the time, so it was like six years ago when I started to look uh, into practices in Bosnia and Rwanda, it was just simply my interest. My interest because uh, what I found out back in the time was that a lot of attention is put into the international institutions which uh, basically deal with uh, 
just little, little proportion of all the perpetrators. And uh, a lot of them are actually dealt with in domestic courts and we simply did not know anything about the practices or what, what is going on there. So that was my uh, main uh, um, reason back in the time. And nowadays, I think indeed we are shifting more and more towards, towards the domestic solutions because the ICTY, ICTR is closed, there is no trials going on and the ICC is uh, struggling. So a lot of people are shifting attention more towards domestic jurisdictions. But don't you think that that shift of attention has meant that we now are really not thinking about what what's actually happened to those people who've been sentenced? I mean, there is still a crowd of Rwandans who are in Arusha who, have, who were all found either not guilty or their trials were stopped, whatever, and they can't go anywhere. And we've got crowds of um, former Yugoslavians who are now in all kinds of jails across Europe or are they back home? I mean, who cares about this? Indeed, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that somebody does. But you know, it's, a, it's a very it, nice but, bridge indeed. Like I, say, I think that's, that's another, another area which where no attention had been dedicated to at all. Nowadays, I think it's slightly changing. So more and more people are actually looking into what, 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 is, what is going on after trials when justice is done, which is a title of the project that I'm running together with a colleague of mine, uh, Joris van Wijk at the FU. And uh, these are very interesting stories, actually, what happens to these people. And I think they also show uh, what the justice is about to an extent as well when it comes to perpetrators because uh, after trials actually um, uh, the convicts are sent to prisons either around Europe from the ICTY so uh, the ICTY actually is enforcing its sentences via domestic states so the ICTYers are sitting uh, in prison with drug dealers or murderers or uh, thieves depending on which country actually we are we are talking about. And uh, at the ICTR, the situation is slightly different. There are not so many countries enforcing actually ICTR sentences. Uh, so far, uh, there have been five, with three taking the main toll, I would say. It's Senegal, Mali and Benin. And the ICTRs are sitting actually in separate wings. So there, there have been like a separate wings created for those convicted by the ICTR, which uh, uh, had to adhere to the minimum human rights standards and therefore they have been so, sort of upgraded and compared to the rest of the prison, these are usually sort of islands of luxury. And uh, what happens after they are released, that's another very, very interesting uh, focus, I think, because majority of them is early released. So at the ICTY, uh, actually, uh, I think around 60 people have been released already. And I found also that you, you say in your research that um, some, uh, and, and you mentioned it here as well, sometimes the sentence depends on whether people uh, express remorse and apologize for their crimes. But I know, um, having lived in Belgrade for five years, that when some ex-ICTY convicts come back, all of a sudden that remorse is either withdrawn completely or they, they kind of say we had to do it to get a lighter sentence. Do you see that? Uh, also as a trend? Uh, I think actually, I'm not sure whether remorse or apology plays any role in, in, in the early release decisions. So actually majority uh, of those who are released, we don't know how they, how they relate back to, to, to their crimes, whether they acknowledged what they have done 
was was wrong. Some of them indeed expressed some regret. Some of them expressed regret about the bad things that happened in Yugoslavia. Some of them say, uh, I am really sorry for the victims. Uh, just a very, very minor sort of part of the prisoners say, uh, I have done wrong. And that's what I think is sort of like a precondition for, for, for remorse. And uh, as you said, I think what is really, really interesting is indeed when they come back to, to especially Serbia or Republika Srpska, some of them are indeed welcomed as war heroes and uh, uh, celebrated and they sort of feed to that celebration with, with, with their speeches and attitudes. Yeah, and you had the classic story of uh, the former Bosnian Serb um, Prime Minister Biljana Plavsic, who um, confessed guilt and got lower sentence because she admitted guilt and she expressed remorse and said that it was bad things that happened. And then she, and then she took it back. <laughs> and then she took it back after spending nine years, so only two thirds of nine years in a super luxury Swedish women's prison that the Serb tabloids were full of how fabulous uh, it was and that she was getting better treatment than the general um, Serb. Um, but doesn't that you doesn't that make you ask yourself that question what what is this all for it does it does and i don't have an answer <laughs> i think it's it's uh, sort of you know what i i am alternating between between two attitudes let's let's call it and one is sort of maybe it should be just about the punishment and uh, sort of retribution so let let them you know uh, serve their deserve even though their deserve oftentimes, as we discussed at the beginning, is uh, might be comparatively very lenient, but at least something. And uh, my other part, asymmetrical haircut, I think. <laughs> my other part is saying, yeah, but maybe we can do more, you know, maybe we can try to uh, think and we would need to really sort of sit, sit down and think about what does it mean to rehabilitate a person who has been a politician and incited masses to commit mass violence? What, 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 what does it mean to change such a person? What would that change entail and how can we do that? And also sort of, sorry, um, accepting that we cannot change everyone, but maybe there are some who would be able to reflect and willing to acknowledge that what they have done is wrong. But I think that what is very, very tricky here is that, that we are dealing with political crimes. We are dealing with uh, uh, ideological crimes. And each perpetrator is different. Each perpetrator has different motives. So we would need to sort of think about about that, about the diversity and about the way how, how to address different motives and different behaviours. What strikes me with this is that you are focused there constantly on the perpetrator themselves as if they are the one that matters. Because they, you know, it's not them that matters though, is it? It's what the rest of society actually feels about them. Um, in, in, I mean, just expressing that, that sense of in some ways... You know, they should just serve their crimes and then, then you shouldn't really worry about them. But it does matter what the rest of society is thinking. It's, it's important what justice means to them. Yeah, you are, you, you are talking to uh, my first part. But my second part would say, indeed, uh, it is the society which matters. But I think that we can also, in a way, 
use, and I'm not sure whether it's the right word, but the perpetrators who still have certain status in the society to interact in a, with a society in a different way than they do now. So what you see in Serbia is uh, sort of like a confirmation of the old biases of the old policies of the victimhood of Serbian people. But imagine, just imagine a person, Radovan Karadzic, being released from prison saying, actually, you know, I acknowledge that what we have done in the name of Serbian people is wrong. And not only him, but if there is more like him who are entrepreneurs, there are entrepreneurs, there are very charismatic persons, there is a reason why, why these people became influential politicians. So maybe they can leverage the same energy towards maybe making a little change. I'm not sure whether it's possible and maybe I'm dreaming, but in this sense, I think indeed society matters, but these are the people who are at the top levels of society. So they can, they can interact with society in different ways, which can to an extent leads to a societal change. So that's how my thinking goes. Maybe I'm naive. Well, I, I thought that I'm not naive anymore, but maybe I am. Well, at least <laughs> idealistic, uh, I think, uh, which, which is good because that also explains why you remain interested in this subject, because you look at perpetrators kind of all day, every day. We tend to think very black and white, that people are bad from the beginning and that's why they commit these crimes. It's uh, why we journalists use terms like warlords. Yes. Warlords, militia leaders, um, strong men. Strong men is a very favorite one. So, so, but you see, do you see the individuals? Do you see a kind of common denominator? Do you see the nuances? Yeah, I try to, but I think... Uh, the, and, and there are, there are, so it certainly is not black and white. And I'm often, now I started a project which is totally different from everything, and I'm very, at the very, very be beginning actually, about collaboration during communism in Czechoslovakia. And in a way, these, these people were also perpetrators, and it made me think what I would have done if I lived in, in, in that time. And that's the question I think that we, we uh, can be asking ourselves what we would have done if we were at the same time and place uh, where, where these people found uh, themselves in. And I think that there is there is a lot of complexities, a lot of nuances. Of course, you cannot uh, throw them all in one basket. So uh, different people act differently and interact differently with, with others. Uh, in a way, like the main, main distinction that one can make is among those at the top, Right? So, so, so the politicians, the generals, the ones who lead and uh, the ones who follow. And that's also what, what uh, scholarship is doing. So, so the followers are, are the ones who actually commit the crimes, act out of, out of uh, yeah, uh, conformity or following orders. Or, and, and many or some scholars, not many scholars, are saying that actually they, they are ordinary pe people in extraordinary circumstances and that almost everyone can be made into a perpetrator of internet crimes and with the leaders we we uh, don't know I would say we don't know so much that's also they are maybe uh, harder nuts to crack <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah so some of them are doing it for power some of them are doing it for personal reasons some of them are doing it for money some of them are doing it for 
politics. So when you mentioned this whole leader follower bit, um, that's also a classic defense in trials. Um, you see now with the trial of Mladic and Karadzic kind of going on at the same time. One is the um, political leader of um, Bosnian Serb Republic during the war. The other one is the military leader. And they tend to point the finger at each other, saying this one had the master plan and I was just doing my job either as a political leader, but I didn't have influence in the army and he did it. And the army general is saying, I didn't see the master plan. I didn't make it. I'm just following uh, political orders and I didn't know anything of this is going on. So there's also a lot of... Shifting of responsibility. Yes. And painting yourself as a follower. In a way. Yes, yes, which, which the character of the crimes make it quite easy, right? So, so they are always, they, they would have never happened only if Karadzic was the only one devising the plans and executing them. And in, in this sense, I think that's also something what, what, what creates a lot of uh, challenges for criminal law to deal with this reality of collective crimes, which are uh, executed, devised, planned and... and uh, yeah, implemented by uh, hundreds of people and not only by the masses, but also at the top. So then it's just very difficult to pinpoint exactly who is the one responsible for this murder in uh, Sarajevo. There is sort of like a never ending chain of, of uh, responsibility and cause. Yeah, and it, and well. it helps our, I think, our, our human kind of um, imagination that we like to think that there is one bad guy with a bad plan and that ordinary people can be seduced in doing that because it gives you a better idea of humanity, maybe. And then in courtrooms, you kind of learn that not quite so. Yeah. But you still have some idealism. Um, but how, how are these court cases for you um, when you have to follow them? Um, can you just switch off and be, this is research, or do you, because you're mostly focused on perpetrators, but you get a lot of victim testimony in all these cases. How do you manage that? For me, actually, and that's interesting, and it's something what I have been finding out lately, is that the work never ends. So indeed, I'm, I'm working all the time, and it's going to be quite, quite draining. So, so lately, I'm actually really trying consciously to stop working and stop reading about 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 my work and start reading something else as well. And, so, but you have a partner who works in the same field, so uh, that uh, might must mean that you uh, is it atrocity for breakfast? I, I, I indeed do, and it's mainly atrocity for uh, for dinner. So, so uh, we oftentimes uh, speak about work because we we do have. Uh, similar interests. We met in Rwanda, so that that's, that says it all, I think. And uh, yeah, it sort of, in a way, uh, determines our le- leisure as well. So so we, we, we watch documentaries, we uh, discuss books together. So indeed, there is like a never-ending work in our household. <laughs> well, Janet and I have this kind of jealous idea because we both have partners who are like, okay, it's my night off. I do not want to watch um, a documentary about the trial of Ratko Mladic, or I do not want to sit next to a woman who's in bed reading a book about the <laughs> about the genocide in Rwanda with fold-out uh, photos of mass graves. And, and we think how nice it would be to have somebody who would be like, a documentary on, on killings in Ukraine? Yes, please. <laughs> 
Yeah, indeed, in our household, it's totally the other way around. Yay, I have a new documentary about Mladic, let's watch it. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that we also try to, but it has to be very conscious, try to limit it. Okay, so so sometimes it's just like, I don't want to talk about work, let's, let's, uh, let's talk uh, about life. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can uh, move on now to some of the, uh, well, their work-life related questions, yes. aren't they? We ask the same three questions to all of our guests and we don't give them a chance to prepare. So uh, the first one is, is there one thing that nobody like us, like, like journalists, ever actually ask you, but we really should ask you each time? That's a good one. You should have asked me to prepare. <laughs> uh, Mm. What can it be? Now I'm overthinking it. I don't know actually. Okay, well, something that's like this is what you do your research and you think, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't think of it that way. And why doesn't anybody else ask me about this? Because I could tell them. What I would be really, really interested in is what what uh, happens to. And that's again the question of, of what happens to but to children of perpetrators and victims. And because what I what I found out, for example, in Rwanda is that that uh, the families and I did a little research project on on uh, uh, children who were born after genocide and how basically the atrocities and transitional justice affected them are uh, very much affected by, 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 by what happened and by what, what is happening to their parents. So they are growing up in, in uh, yeah, uh, parentless households and uh, oftentimes actually the family is asked to pay reparations for, for their fathers mainly. And it affects them very much. So that's the question which I think can be also maybe journalistically researched. is just what, what, what happens to the generations which actually have not... Uh, uh, experience the atrocities and how they are affected by everything. The second question we want to ask is, um, tell us something that everybody gets wrong about your research or about your work. I think uh, we mentioned it during the conversation and it's just uh, who the perpetrators are and that, that uh, they are either bad or not either, but they, that they are bad or evil people. And uh, in this sense, I think that there is a lot of, lot of, uh, uh, yeah, assumptions and a lot of, lot of uh, preconceptions which, which uh, are not right. So it's just they are uh, people like you and me, and uh, it's also very nice to sort of, uh, yeah, uh, break this perpetrator conundrum, which I think not so many people are doing. So yeah. And is there anything that you've read recently, seen recently, um, or just something you'd like to recommend mm -hmm. to people? Mm -hmm. I actually now uh, uh, rewatched a movie, which is a very old Czech movie. It's called Witch Hammer. It's not so much related to justice part, but much more to the perpetrators part. And it's on the witch trials uh, during Inquisition in uh, Czechoslovakia or Bohemia back, back in the time, because it was 1600. And I think that it, uh, it has a lot of parallels with sort of like a, a, a periods of, of mass atrocities and how people are swayed and how might maybe also the reaction, how, how people react to, 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 to these acts and to... Uh, individuals who, who get involved. So that, that's a very, very interesting movie which maybe people don't know about. 
and my grandfather is one is playing one, one, one of the roles so that was also the reason why I watched it <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to see if we can find that yeah. so, thanks Barbara for, for coming in and talking to us today and I'm sure we'll find another opportunity to, to chat to you again uh, more of your work it's so fascinating You've been listening to Asymmetrical Haircuts, and that's me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. And we say thank you to our guest, Barbara Holler, our editorial intern, Hannah van der Werf. Our website and production guru, Joost van Egmond. And our hosts, Humanity Hub here in The Hague. This is a great place for co-working. And in fact, you might be able to hear just in the background some of our co-workers because there's lots of people in this particular place. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to give us a rating wherever you found us and let us know if um, you like some particular subject or do you have um, a guest you want to recommend on our website. Asymmetricalhaircuts.com and our Twitter feed. Bye. Bye. This podcast was created and hosted by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music was by audionautics.com.